Today's podcast is brought to you by LootCrate.com. Save 10% on any new subscription at TryLootCrate.com slash PictureLock. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. You're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 DC Black Film Festival call for entries is now open. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. Visit dcbff.org for more details. I'm trying to keep this intro as tight as possible because I've got some good interviews today and they need a little extra time. I have writer-director of The Rape of Reese Taylor, Nancy Bursky, John Dr. Teeth Tucker, director of Pass on Two, and Eric Christopher Myers, director of Butterfly Kisses. As this airs, you can catch Butterfly Kisses tonight at the Annapolis Film Festival, so pay attention to those details. These were great interviews with directors of fantastic films. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. Hey, this is Sandra Bertolanzi, creator of Kunstler, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Reese Taylor, a 24-year-old black mother and sharecropper, was gang-raped by six white boys in 1944, Alabama. Common in Jim Crow South, few women spoke up in fear for their lives, but not Reese Taylor. She bravely identified her rapist. The NAACP sent its chief rape investigator, Rosa Parks, who rallied support and triggered an unprecedented outcry for justice. The film, The Rape of Reese Taylor, exposes the legacy of physical abuse of black women and reveals Rosa Parks' intimate role in Reese Taylor's story. I have the director of the film, Nancy Bursky, on the line with me. Nancy, welcome to Picture Lock. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Nancy, the first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? You know, I can't remember. It's so long ago. <laughs> um, I, as long as I can remember, I loved film. Um, and, I, you know, I, I grew up watching film on television or going to the movie theaters with my parents. And um, it was, I think, a wonderful pleasure and an escape and um, a way of informing myself about the world. So I have to say that it, it's about as long as, as long as I can remember. <laughs> All right, so there wasn't like that one particular film that is just like your all-time favorite that uh, hit you. It's just like it was there from the beginning. Yes, it was there from the get-go. And frankly, when people ask me what my favorite film is, I can never answer it. Because <laughs> it depends on the day and the week. And, <laughs> and, and, and I'm actually engaged in it that moment that makes me think about that film. So there are just too many. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. All right, so Nancy, if you could, let's get a history lesson. Um, how did you actually kind of get into the film industry? Um, well, I it, it's an interesting and somewhat long story, but um, I was originally a photographer, and um, I was um, for a while the foreign picture editor at the New York Times. So I was very interested. I've always been a visual person and um, appreciated, you know, really informed and beautiful visual images. Um, I moved to North Carolina in 1996 
and began a film festival there called Full Frame, which was at the time the only documentary, um, exclusive documentary film festival in the country, or at least one of them. And, um, and so I spent about 10 years looking at that festival and looking at every documentary um, that I could possibly look at. Um, the reason I wanted to do a documentary film festival is, one, because I did come from a journalist background where information and truth really mattered to me. Um, but I also knew that there were very few of those around, and I felt documentaries deserved that kind of um, recognition. So I, um, the film festival did extremely well, and there was clearly an appetite for documentaries. And during that period, you know, I was looking at everything and thinking back on the kind of visual images that I used to work with. And by year 10, I was just hungry to make my own film. So this was in 2008. Um, I came across an obituary of Mildred Loving and, um, and, and quickly did some research and realized that not a lot of people knew about the Lovings, um, who were the, they're, they're the main um, protagonists of Loving v. Virginia, which is the um, court case that overturned all the anti-interracial marriage bans in the country. And, um, and, and I thought, well, this is really a very important film, and I, and I, I just dove into it. I love the fact that Mildred Loving herself was heroic, though she wasn't an activist. Um, she was, she was resilient. And, um, and so made that movie, it did well, um, and realized that this was the love of my life, was making films. And so I moved on to other films after that. I made a film called After Fawn. I made a film called By Sidney Lumet, about a great director you, you probably know of. <laughs> right. Um, and um, I, I also was involved in producing the feat version of The Loving Story called Loving, made by Jeff Nichols. And, um, and then I discovered the um, story of Rishi Taylor, and, and that's where we are today. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director of The Rape of Reese Taylor, Nancy Bursky, um, who is also <laughs> making me know, I got to do deeper deeper dive on my research. Man, I didn't realize that you had uh, started uh, Full Frame. That's awesome. Um, I recently started DC Black Film Festival just as a way to um, see more uh, images of African people of African descent on the big screen. Um, and so one of the things that I know you have said is that even though you're a white woman, um, you felt it was really important to tell um, the story of Reese Taylor. And a, a lot of us know Oprah spoke about her in the Golden Globes, but it just seems like you've always been like a few years ahead of everybody in terms of, uh, you know, <laughs> capturing the loving story, Reese Taylor's story. So if you could, um, just in your own words, uh, what is uh, The Rape of Reese Taylor all about? Well, Reese Taylor was a 24-year-old um, mother and, and, and wife and, and a sharecropper living in Abbeville, Alabama, um, who was leaving church one day and one evening, um, and she was stopped on the side of the road by a car full of seven white boys, and I do say boys because they were quite, you know, they, they, their ages ranged from 14 to 18, um, and they basically kidnapped her, and they went to the field, and they spent four hours gang raping her, six of the seven boys, um, raped her that, that evening. Um, and um, it, it's, it's a horrendous crime to even think about, but what's really amazing is that unlike other women, 
and, and as you said in your summary of, of the film, this did happen a lot. But unlike other women, Rishi Taylor immediately spoke up and she accused her attackers, which was almost unheard of because this put her life in mortal danger and that of her family. Um, but she didn't hesitate. And not only did she speak up, but her family speaks up over and over again. They attract the attention of the NAACP, and one of their great investigators at the NAACP was also the secretary of the NAACP in Montgomery, um, and that was Rosa Parks. So Rosa Parks comes to investigate this rape. She, she visits Rishi Taylor in Abbeville, and let's remember this is in 1944, 11 years before the Montgomery bus boycott, for which Rosa Parks is very well known because she refused to move her seat. Mm-hmm. And most people think of Rosa Parks as a tired seamstress who just didn't move her seat that day and was arrested. Um, and that ignited the bus boycott um, soon after. But she was an activist and very engaged in these issues um, for years, um, not something that's always reported. Um, in any case, the story goes on. She helps people create a, um, a committee to get Reese Taylor justice. Um, this is called the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. And, um, and she, along with many other black women, um, work hard to put pressure on the governor to um, have another grand jury hearing. They had an, uh, one early grand jury hearing soon after the rape, and the boys were let off, of course, even after Taylor identified a few of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this committee puts pressure on the governor to have another one. And I'm not sure I want to tell much more at this point. I want people to see the movie, but um, suffice it to say that Reese Taylor doesn't really get the justice she deserves, and our movie is is shining a light on that injustice. And and so the legions of African American women who work so hard um, on her behalf and on other and and helping other women do the same. I think as the director, you you thread a very fine needle with this film because uh, we kind of start out and we actually hear the story told in terms of, um, you know, how she was gang raped through her family, kind of the the aftermath of that, uh, and then moving forward to, you know, even MLK coming in and, and things like that. But I definitely have to commend you on on your skillful hand because I think you really stayed focused. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is many of the objects or images in the film, right? Because a lot of it is actually the audio of the voice, the voiceover as, you know, a family member is talking. But the images that you display are, they tend to be objects or it's objects in isolation. And I was kind of wondering if you're doing that to kind of uh, supplement maybe the way that uh, Reese definitely felt um, as she was being raped, but then also just kind of how black women may have felt back then, um, you know, in, in terms of the loneliness and, and the isolation. Is that is what I'm saying making sense? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's a really beautiful question, and um, I hadn't really ever thought of it quite that way. Um, I very much did not want to use reenactments. I, I felt like trying casting actors and trying to get them to reenact what happened to Reese Taylor um, would have been because I don't think there's any way you can create that. Um, but we did have um, access to these amazing race movies, race, what race films. These are, race, these are movies that are made by African-American directors, uh, cast with all African-American um, actors, 
for black audiences. And they were made initially as a response to Birth of a Nation, which came out in about 1915 or 16. And Oscar Micheaux is probably the best known of these directors. Um, but they they chose themes that were prevalent in their lives. To These are fictional films, but these are themes that it's a reality that they're putting on the screen. And so the women that you see running in these of running away and being chased, to me, they represent all the Reese Taylors. Um, and I wanted to make the point that it was that it happened to more than one person. That this was a, a kind of ubiquitous um, type of behavior that was going on then. And 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 I think the films say that because had it not been happening so frequently, it wouldn't have become a theme in their work. So um, you know, I. I I didn't really think about the objectification of the of the women, but I think that's a really good point, and I think it is, you know, it does happen um, as a result of looking at those films. So obviously, we are living in a day and age uh, in which you know we have a Me Too movement, Times Up, um, and some something powerful is is happening. Um, right now, and so it's great to to see a story like this that's being told. Because honestly, like you know, until Oprah had gotten up and she said that, I had no idea like who Reese Taylor was. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, like, what are you most proud of in in telling this story, and why do you think it's important that people see it? Um. Well, you were not alone. There are many people who didn't know who she was. So one of the things I'm proud of is getting her um, out there, getting her there. This was always the original goal of the film. And, and the original goal of her family, was they were incredibly helpful in making this movie. Um, but I think that there's also, um, you know, another goal here. And, and you made me think of it when you mentioned the fact that I'm a white woman and, and made this film. But... I do feel that, you know, the race story and, and particularly issues of race and, and women being assaulted is a real American tragedy. And I feel like white people are complicit in this um, and that we need to connect the dots. We need to we need to be responsible and tell these stories. We're all storytellers. And I think that, you know, black women would probably tell this story differently. And I know they will tell it. Um, and I hope they do. But, you know, we we need to all tell it because it connects us all. I think that this, uh, this story is so epic. It's almost biblical. And I think that what we understand is that we need to see each other. That um, as, as one of our scholars says at the end of the movie, one of the things that shook her to the core was that these white boys didn't really see Reese Taylor as a human being. They saw her as an idea. And I'm hoping that this film allows us to see her as a human being and see other women like her as human because we're all part of this big thing we call humanity. And uh, unless we put that on the screen, I don't think we're going to get very far. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the director of The Rape of Reese Taylor, Nancy Bursky. Nancy, I think you're totally right. I mean, uh, even if, you know, it doesn't really matter the race, right? And that's why I did want to highlight um, that. It's something that stood out to me in your director's bio um, is because, you know, just because maybe you might think that this is a black story or a black woman, 
Um, it really doesn't matter. Right is right, wrong is wrong. You know, we're all just a part of the human race. And so I think that um, what you said is is on point. Um, it's definitely, uh, it's one of those things where if, if somebody else can't tell it, but it's on your heart to do it, then you should step up and do it. So I really appreciate the fact um, that you did step up to do it. Can I, can I just add one more thing? Because you, you, you very beautifully kind of supported um, my reason for making this movie. Um, but, you know, as much as I do believe that we all tell these stories and, and connect us all, I also want to be clear that I understand that black women will tell the story differently than I told it. And, and that's why I hope that they will tell it, because they'll bring a very special perspective to it that I can't possibly bring to this, this story. And so um, I, I hope that, you know, the story communicates a very, very important message, and I hope that we can expand on it to other people telling the story as well. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, kind of rounding out things here, um, I wonder for you, like, what has bringing this story to life, uh, how has that personally changed you? Because I think when we work on a project, right, when we're, we're engrossed in it for months, a year, two years, whatever the case may be, however long it took you to create this, um, what did you walk away with uh, in, in your soul as a person? Oh, you know, I think I've answered that in a way already by talking about the way the stories connect us. And I have to say that um, in talking about the film after the screenings and hearing the feelings that people have about the film, their connection to it, their amazement about the information they didn't actually have before, um, that has been so been so rewarding to me that I feel that we have, and, I, and again, I didn't make this film by myself, so I want to kind of impress upon everybody that it takes really does take a village to make these films all but right. um i think we all feel we all feel so rewarded by the response to the movie and and the, and the deep feeling that that many people have white and black men and women um to rishi taylor's story so i uh, you know i i just i i can't say enough that this of all the films i've made this has probably been the most profound experience. Uh, not only did I feel a profound responsibility to do this right and fairly, but I also have found that the response to it has been amazing. And, um, you know, we all, we all hope that our films will have an impact and might actually affect some change. And I feel like if any film does, this one seems to have a possibility, has the possibility of doing that, particularly since we're still living this story. The story has not gone away. It's still part of every day. And so I think people are connecting Reese Taylor's story to what they're living through right now. And that's that's very exciting. Well, I think it is. And I think it's super important. And for me personally, as a black man, um, you know, a lot of my history, you know, black folks history has been hidden. And so uh, the fact that, you know, you have this film um, and it, it stitches another piece to the quilt of uh, some of our history. Um, so I really appreciate that. If you could, Nancy, let folks know how they can see the film, follow you on social media, etc. Um, our Facebook page is Rape of Rishi Taylor. Um, we also have a Twitter handle, which I'm blanking on right now, but if you Facebook, you'll see um, We also have a website called the 
And um, there you will see not only where the film is playing, but you can also request um, the the possibility of doing a screening um, in your community, at your church, at a university you may be associated with. So please contact us and let us know if you'd like to do a screening. The film will be available at the end of March on iTunes and Amazon and a number of other places. And again, our Facebook page lists all that information. Um, and so we're excited about the film more available, but I do want to emphasize the fact that this is a film really, um, I find really important for people to see it with other people, to share this experience. So available and want to look at it in the privacy of their own home. I hope that they'll take advantage of the hundreds of screenings we're doing around the country. All of this will be listed on Facebook um, and, or create a screening um, regardless of how available the film is. Um, we, we're, we're excited about encouraging that kind of um, involvement. And then please let us know how you feel on Facebook um, and talk to us. We, we're, we're very interested in the response by, by everybody. Nancy Bursky, the director of The Rape of Reese Taylor, thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, this is Tim Gordon. Founder and director of the Lakefront Film Festival, and you listening to my man Sam, Kevin Sampson, on Picture Lock Radio. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Pass on Two is a dark comedy in which social expectations meets willful stupidity that plays like an exhilarating gift. I mean, the best way to describe it, this film is Friday meets French New Wave. I have the director of the film on the line with me, John Dr. Teeth Tucker. John, welcome to Picture Lock. Ah, man, I'm so happy to, to be uh, on your podcast, man. This is so dope. Yeah, you know, no, no, let, let me tell you, this is dope for me because, like, back in the day, I'm watching, you know, Hip Hop Save My Life. Little did I know that, like, years from now, I'll be talking to you right now. So, you know, I guess it goes both ways, bro. <laughs> Uh-huh. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so listen. And, and you uh, know what's funny? Go ahead. Oh, well, what's funny is that I'm finding out how many people really, you know, fans of the music video work. Because a lot of times as a creative, you live inside of a bubble and you see yourself as somebody trying to do something, right? Mm-hmm. And not someone that is accomplished in what you're doing. Because you're always personally trying to reach your levels. And so it's just really refreshing that when I meet people, they're like, oh, man, they call back some of my work and they tell me how much they really appreciate the uh, the, the, the work that I put out there. So this is great. Yeah, most definitely. Well, John, the first question that I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Oh, my God. When I first fell in love with film, uh, and, and actually I didn't know it, <laughs> was when I... Uh, was a kid and I would on Saturday would watch television all day. You wake up early and you watch the early morning cartoons. Right. And then in the evening they had, I grew up in Cincinnati. They had this thing called creature features come on channel 19 and you would watch all these old movies from the fifties. And I used to watch a film called the blob and it's when I saw, <laughs> like, Godzilla films and Boris Karloff films. And I would just watch 
television all day, not knowing that this was crafting me into a storyteller. Right. No, not I, even knowing it would be my destiny. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's always fun to ask that question because I get so many different answers, um, but I can always relate to the filmmakers as, as they're talking or describing about when they first fell in love with film because it was the same thing with me, like me and my brother waking up Saturday mornings, you watch cartoons and, you know, my brother would always play video games. I would watch TV. And, and like you said, it's like, you, you know, back then, like <laughs> whatever came on, came on. It wasn't DVR. So like, you know, you would have to either VHS <laughs> record it mm -hmm. and then yep. you watch that over <laughs> and over. You know, Last Dragon was one of those things, all, all kinds of stuff. Yep. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel you on that one. Um, if you could, for the audience, let's just get a little history lesson. Like, how did you go from uh, that kid that was watching cartoons and watching Boris Karloff films uh, into, like, the actual industry? Wow. Well, uh, the short version. Uh, I was in a music group. People don't know that I'm a musician. Uh, when I started college, I was uh, a vocal major. And I had a singing group. And we would sing, and this was like mid-90s, early 90s, and um, we were singing, and we were trying to be that next R&B group, that next Jodeci. And uh, when we would put our demos together, everything based on the demo was based off of cassette tape, handing your cassette to an executive, to a record guy. And at that point, visual medium was not, popular because it wasn't accessible to a lot of people. You, you, you had a camcorder, but nobody had editing material. Nobody had Final Cut on their computers. And people didn't have computers. They barely had – actually, they really didn't have cell phones unless you really had a lot of money. <laughs> right. And so at the university, they had a communication department, and the communication department had cameras and, and editing equipment. And so I was like, I can make our demos better if I record our showcases and then cut them up and make that like an extra feature to what we do. And I got bit by the bug, man. I was I was um, shooting our stuff, and then I would take it, I would go and borrow four cameras from the, the, uh, the communication department. I would unman them, set them up, put them on manual, on tripods. We would perform. Then I would take those tapes, go back, learned how to edit. It was just tape to tape, so it was just cuts. <laughs> and then I put this demo together, and I I just fell in love with that whole medium and actually found my calling because when the group fell apart, um, I, I, I had this love now for, for, for visual mediums. And never knowing that in that interim, when we would sing and when we would produce music, I always saw images and colors. It's just, I think it was a natural progression. It's funny how the uh, student is starting to, you know, become the Jedi. <laughs> and it's just a natural, you know what I mean? Like a natural calling right. <laughs> that you run into Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> and then find out Vader's your father, right? <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened for me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's Picture Lock. Yeah. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the man that has a few Jedi mind tricks of his own. It's John <laughs> Dr. T. Tucker, the director of Pass on Two. Man, yeah I, yeah, I love that. I love that story, uh, John, just because, uh, 
like you said, it, even in the beginning, it's like I, what I'm what I'm really finding as I get older in life, you know, almost about to hit 35 is that like a lot of people it's kind of like it's always been there, like whatever you're passionate about. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you kind of have gravitated towards it, but you, you're not knowing that like when you're young, like that age, that you're picking up those skills that can help you um, with what you're passionate about. So that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Who knew all them butt whoopings I took for sneaking and watching TV, it would pay for this house on me. Who knew? Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I can still see clearly um, one night when my dad had sent me upstairs, but it, the Cosby show was on. And you know, like, the Cosby yeah. show, like, you can't, you couldn't miss the Cosby show in a different world. And I remember sneaking to, like, where the stairwell, like, starts to open up to, like, downstairs. And I would just, like, peek, poke my head. Yeah, dude, I, I totally can relate to you on that. One. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> one thing that I was thinking about um, is, you know, music is a universal language. Right. And um, no matter where you are, you, you, you understand and you can feel an artist uh, and their expression within music. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you take film, mm-hmm. which I feel is another universal language, because, you know, no matter what, like you can watch a French film and you understand what the characters are going through. So when you think mm-hmm. about music videos, right, you're, you're basically mm-hmm. mixing the best of both worlds, because, like you said, you're taking the music from um, Swisher House and, and, and all those guys and and mm-hmm. all that, uh, you know, it meant to their culture. And then you're matching that with uh, a visual image. So <clears throat> if you right. could talk a little bit about, you know, what it, what it took to kind of tell short, concise stories in music videos and like how that has pre- prepared you for longer form storytelling and film. Well, music videos is where I actually cut my teeth. Uh, no pun. <laughs> but uh, it's where I cut my teeth. It's where I had some of my major failures and some of my major successes. Uh, and in telling the story, I came into it as a storyteller, again, not knowing what that was. Um, my producer would always say, he just wants to tell stories. He wants to tell stories. And I didn't understand and what the music video is about the performance. You can put the story in there, but what the label wants to see is their artist looking like a star and performing and engaging and bringing people into the music. Um, and what it allowed me to do is learn how to tell a story uh, through music video. The cool thing about music video is that they, at that time, you would have these huge budgets of a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, a million dollars to uh, produce uh, some work on film with seasoned professionals, seasoned uh, cinematographers and editors, and me being the weak link in the group. <laughs> and so wow. I learned how to how to use lenses and use the lenses to tell the story adequately because a lot of people don't know how to use them lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned how to set up my shot and then I learned how to dress everything in the shot and light and compose within the shot. Um, a lot of people don't know that. They do a lot of point and shoot. And I learned to edit to shoot because we only had so many cans of film. I just couldn't shoot everything. 
So I had to come in prepared. That's another thing. Uh, like I say, when preparation meets opportunity. And so I learned how to prepare uh, and know exactly what I want and not going in and shooting a bunch of stuff and then going back and figuring it out later. Uh, it extremely prepared me for the journey that I'm taking now. So I, I owe that to music video. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think it does. You know, yeah. it's kind of interesting because um, and one, of the, one of the things in studying film, I feel like the, the greats, it, it's much like, like hip-hop, right? So like uh, mm -hmm. Biggie didn't write you know his rhymes down jay-z doesn't write his stuff out because it's all in his head and in the same way it's like after after you practice and you put in your hours like everything is in your head so what you just said makes total sense man i get it it's picture lock i'm your host kevin sampson and uh, i'm talking with the director of pos on two john dr teeth tucker uh, this has been a great conversation john let's go ahead and get into pos on two if you could uh in your own words what's the film all about well, the film, <laughs> it's an eclectic piece of work. Um, <laughs> it's eclectic. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's rooted in the foundation of French New Wave, Novella Vogue, uh filmmaking. Uh, it's about a guy who was named, his name is Henry. He's a slacker. Uh, he doesn't care about anybody or anything. And he's a user. He's. I had a couple friends. We would go to the movies, show up at the movies. We're paying, and he doesn't have money, so we got to pay for him. <laughs> you know, because right. there's no going back. Right. The movie starting. Can't leave him out. He's <laughs> that guy. And so uh, he uses his friends. They go. They hit the strip club. They paying for him soon to get in. They're paying for his dances. You know, if they go out to eat, they're paying for that. And so he uses. People. He's living off of his uh, grandfather's social security. His grandfather's dead, uh, and he don't care. Uh, he uses women, and uh, he he is the kind of he's kind of a kid, a guy that needs to grow up. Well, he's the type of dude that when you see coming, it's like, oh, here comes that guy. <laughs> right. And so he gets drunk off of his friend's bottle of Cavassier. When he wakes up, he speaks pure, eloquent French. And so the story transfers into a four-by-three picture, black and white, French New Wave style of film. Uh, this cat is speaking French. He's still, still mean, still rude. But the people in the neighborhood who hate to see him coming, they think now, yo, he's this cat's saying something provocative because <laughs> it's in French. And so they don't know what he's saying, but they think what he's saying is really cool. And so he starts to find favor with them. <laughs> All right, John. So, <laughs> so I'm going to hop in right there so that the audience can uh, have something to, to look forward to when they see the film. Okay. But I, I do want to kind of camp out a little bit in, in the film um, because I, I think – Language is one of the keys in the film, whether they're speaking English, French, or even the subtitles on screen at times, like it's English subtitles versus French subtitles and things like that. So can you talk a little bit about how um, language is almost like another character in the film? Yes, language is, it is another character in the film. It's a, it's a big 
character. Actually, I think it should be uh, credited <laughs> as a starring character. And so many times that we uh, look at people for the, the, the color of their skin uh, and assume that because you are a certain color that you're official and because you speak a certain way, you're official. And uh, because you carry yourself in a certain way that you, you're better, when I say official, that you're better than others, when at the end of the day we're all human mm-hmm. and we all do humanistic acts and we all have rights and we all have wrongs. And just because you deem someone to be better by how they look, they could be the worst person you ever met. You know, and so we kind of play with that, those stereotypes in the film. The film initially starts almost like a B-flick. The, the language is harsh. It's very ignorant. Because in my mind, in the writer's mind, uh, uh, guy, the guy that wrote the Marcus uh, Guillory, um, we wanted you to not see that this guy is capable of transforming from a scummy, slummy, uh, negative speaking, cussing guy to a, a, a guy who could then start to articulate in, in French. And then to complement the story, the, all the uh, sensibilities of French New Wave style is then even more accented throughout that portion of the film. You know, and so he has to make a, he has to figure out what's his path. Is he going to change is he going to sacrifice himself for something is he going to stand up for something you know and these are the things that he has to discover along his his journey if you could like let the audience know uh it's on the film festival circuit right now but how can they follow you follow the film etc all right so you can follow me uh on instagram at director dr teeth you actually can follow the film uh on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. It's all the same. It's POS on two, uh, which is spelled P-A-S-H-O-N-T-E-U-X. In French translation, I mean, shameful not. So P-A-S-H-O-N-T-E-U-X. And um, you can follow us there on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest uh, and Twitter. And you can get more information. We also have a, a website, which is www.possumtux.com. And you can see the trailer and get more information. Because the brother that plays the lead, Travis uh, LeBranch, never spoke French. He learned it. He took the lesson in three months. And he nailed the role. I just think it's a great role of transformation for an actor to play this type of dark comedy presented in the, you know, in, in the urban, uh, urban Atlanta, Georgia, and not know French and learn French and, and be able to nail this role. It's, it, we, we did a lot of preparation for it. You know, I, I'm so glad that you had brought that up because that was one of the questions I forgot to ask because um, I was wondering if he spoke French prior or not. So man, that, yeah, as you said, hats off to him. Um, it's such a such a great film, folks. You definitely want to check uh, check it out. Um, follow them on the website, Instagram, etc. Uh, director of Passant Two, John Doctor T Tucker. Man, appreciate you coming yeah. on Picture Lot. Thank you for having Thank you for having me, man. This is the first interview that I've done as a 
for the film and uh, in this way as a as a director of films now. Nice. Yes. That's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. Thanks so much for listening to Picture Lock Podcast, guys. I'm always trying to find great deals on cool things that I can offer you, as you know. And with Picture Lock, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Well, what is Loot Crate, you ask? Loot Crate is a monthly mystery crate for geeks, gamers, and fans of pop culture delivering cool and often exclusive items like collectibles, t-shirts, home goods, and more directly to your door every month. What makes Loot Crate so awesome to me is instead of getting my new graphic tees from the store each month, for the same price or less, I can get cool apparel from my favorite TV shows, movies, games, and more. And if you got a little more to shell out, you can get even bigger and better items. No matter what you pay per month, the value of the crate is usually more, so it's a win-win. You're going to search through the rack or shelves anyway. Let Loot Crate do it for you and throw a little curveball in there for you. To save 10% on any new subscription, go to trylootcrate.com slash picture lock. Again, that's trylootcrate.com slash picture lock to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and in Butterfly Kisses, a videographer sorting through used tapes uncovers hours of footage of a young woman obsessed with an apocryphal figure known as Peeping Tom. Determined to uncover the mystery behind her fascination, he in turn loses himself in the vanished woman's tale. I have the director of this film on the line with me, Eric Christopher Myers. Eric, welcome to Picture Lock. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, I am so excited. Eric, I haven't been this excited about an indie film in quite some time, if if ever. Like, this, is, I, I'm so excited to talk about this. Uh, but the, uh, you, tell, you tell all the filmmakers that, <laughs> don't you? You not, old, old schmoozy. I don't think I tell them like like this. You can you can check the tapes. Uh, <laughs> you might go you into know, your... Actually, it's really cool talking to you about this because the last time you and I were face to face was at the 2014 Indie Capital Awards. And I was there for my film Roulette and it won some awards. And so you interviewed me on the red carpet and you asked me what I had coming up next. And it was the very first time that I ever referenced this film to anyone anywhere outside.
outside of the people that were working on it with me in pre-production at the time. And I, you know, sort of dropped a cryptic little clue and just said I was going to be doing something really under the radar. And it was so under the radar that it's only just now that we are announcing festivals and sort of coming out with this film. A lot of people are looking at me and saying, you made another movie? I had no idea you made another movie. (laughs) Right. It was that secretive. So it's just cool to be talking to you of all people, not only for your enthusiasm for the film, but just that, you know, we, we had that, we had that little shared moment there. You know, and, and you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, so we did talk about this a little bit on Facebook and when I went back and I checked the tape, I was like, wow, how crazy would that have been if blank, but we're going to save that for the podcast version when we get into spoiler territory. But for right now, Eric, first question I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, it was an immediate thing. It was at a very young age. Um, I just began watching movies, particularly uh, movies that scared the hell out of me. Um, An American Werewolf in London, movies like that that I saw at a really young age. And the, uh, the fact that they scared me as much as they did... Um, had a power. Uh, it, there was a power that drew me back repeatedly. Horror isn't the only genre that I love or that I make, but there was something about that genre and its ability to affect me on such a primal level that I wanted to understand the power it had over me, and then I wanted to try, in turn, to do that to other people. It was a, it was a very it was a very immediate thing. It was it, storytelling in general, whether film or on the written page, was something that that became an obsession of mine from the time I was old enough to understand what stories were. Now, to follow up on that, because I, I think this is, that's a great point that you have. Um, a lot of times I do, in, in turn, get fascinated by the fact that we can watch a film and it can totally shift our emotions and our mood and put us into certain places. So kind of following up on what you just said, do you feel as though you've been able to uh, master or at least uh, get down the techniques to draw out the fear in people? Um, anyone says that they've ever mastered anything, particularly in regards to art, uh, doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. But um, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that um, I'm continuously developing my toolkit. Um, I'd like to say that I'm able to tell compelling stories uh, with subject matter that can be either troubling or uh, can provoke conversation and thought. Uh, the, the last film that I did, which was actually my first feature, um, it was called Roulette, and it got me into a lot of trouble in some circles uh, because the ending uh, was very grisly, and it had, a, it had a plot point that bothered a lot of people and there were a number of festivals that, um, or, or in fact, uh, local venues that wouldn't show the film because the ending was so intense. And the great irony was that I went back to, to Hitchcock. I went, I went to the shower scene in Psycho and um, the editing techniques of, uh, you know, putting together disparate ideas uh, to create a new idea. You know, you see see Norman Bates swinging a knife, you see Janet Lee screaming, and then you see blood going down the drain, and you think you're seeing a woman being stabbed to death in a shower, but you're not actually seeing anything. Um, I, I 
utilized that approach uh, with the ending of roulette, and a lot of people thought they saw more than they did, mm. uh, or else just the the content or the subject matter of the content was considered to be um, too edgy. But at any rate, uh, you know that was the best and worst thing that ever happened to me, uh, in the sense that you know yes, it did bother a number of people, but it also showed me the power um, that I could wield or anybody could wield uh, when telling a story. And it got me a lot of notice. It got me a lot of attention. Um, I don't employ quite the same tricks in butterfly kisses, but um, I tried some new things and they seem to be working in front of festival audiences. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking to the writer director of Butterfly Kisses, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, Eric, I really uh, love the fact that I am talking to a cinematic scholar. You understand that A plus B equals C, uh, as we just talked about with uh, Hitchcock. Um, and I, I definitely think that that shines through um, in Butterfly Kisses. One last question before we get to that. Um, could you just give us like your background story? Like, How did you get into the industry? So you're that kid that loved, you know, um, the horror films, and then from there, did you go to school, or you know, did you just start making films? Um, I was writing stories and screenplays from the time I was very young. Um, I was involved with theater all throughout uh, high school, and uh, never with an intent to act, but rather an understanding of um, the performing arts and uh, specifically how an actor finds uh, their technique uh, to disappear into a role. I really wanted to understand that because I knew that I wanted to direct at some point. Um, I made a number of uh, bad films in high school with friends. Uh, bad in the best possible way. Uh, I still <laughs> love them very much. Nice. Uh, but you're still cringy when you watch them. Um, but regardless, after high school, I took a few years off before I went to college and instead, I was working on local plays and other productions, uh, whether that was running the lights or, or painting sets or whatever I could do to sort of um, wedge my way in the door and meet people. All the while, I was continuing my own self-education with, uh, with film, specifically with screenwriting, um, studying uh, published uh, screenplays and the works of various uh, film critics. And uh, then when I went back to school, the intent was to be an English teacher and to hopefully sell a script or do some, uh, some film work on the side. And I realized I wasn't happy and that I needed to take the jump, and so I did. I went to Towson University. I was an electronic media and film major. And um, after college, I got a number of recent grads together and said, Let's pool our resources. Let's make an independent film. Let's let people know we're here. And so we made Roulette, and it was regionally successful enough that it um, it got a fair amount of press. It played a few small festivals, won some awards, and it got me some meetings, and that led to Butterfly Kisses and where I am today. Awesome. So let's finally, we're here. Let's get into it. Butterfly kisses. Uh, if you could just in your own words, because I feel like personally, when I saw this, I went into it because you've done such a great job of keeping it a secret. 
Um, I went into it with fresh eyes and uh, I was absolutely floored. But I wanted you to put it in your own words what the film is about as not to, you know, mess it up because uh, I could try to describe this thing and I might mess things up. But I want the audience to be able to see it with fresh eyes. It's going to be playing at the Annapolis Film Festival um, and other places. But I think that's going to be the, the place, folks, that you can see it real soon here. Kevin, you're, you're experiencing the same problem I have, which is this is a very... Uh, I don't want to say difficult movie to describe, but rather you could come at it from probably about four or five different angles and uh, pitch it in different ways, depending on what you consider to be the, uh, the, the, the most salient part of the, the film. Um, Butterfly Kisses is a documentary about a documentary about a documentary. Um, it is a film within a film within a film. It is the story of a Baltimore-based videographer named Gavin York who discovers in the basement of his mother-in-law's new home a shoebox, um, a 10-year-old shoebox filled with mini DV tapes dating back to 2004. And he goes through this footage and what he sees is, in his mind, a real-life Blair Witch Project, a real-life paranormal activity. Um, it's found footage in the truest sense of the word in that he actually finds this, and it tells the story of student filmmakers who go to make a documentary about a local urban legend, an apparition known as Peeping Tom, and uh, their supernatural um, experiences uh, subsequent to filming him and their ultimate disappearance or, or demise. And this videographer in 2015 who's found this box of tapes believes that, uh, you know, he's, he's struck gold. This is the real thing. This isn't manufactured by studios. This is real-life found footage. And being a somewhat failed filmmaker as he is, he's viewing this as his last opportunity to make his mark in the world. So he's trying to go forth with this box of tapes and prove to the world uh, that it is real and cash in on it. And along the way, he is met with nothing but skepticism and obstacles and um, accusations of, of fraud, more or less. And as he is going through this experience of trying to get the, the footage out there and seen by the world, he too ends up going down a very, very dark road as he becomes more and more obsessed with the footage. So uh, I guess the next question would be, like, what inspired you uh, to create this? Because, uh, again, folks, I think this is just such a fresh, uh, original take on the genre that I, when I saw it, I was like, what? what? Like, how many years? Obviously, we, we're talking about when you mentioned it, I think that was 2014 when we spoke on the red carpet. It's been, it had to have been, you know, just festering in your mind for quite some time. What inspired uh, this film? It was, it was really, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't in my mind for that long. It, it kind of came to me like lightning out of a clear blue sky one day when I was out for a walk, as most ideas do. Um, the, the interest uh, in cryptozoology and urban legends and folklore uh, exists with me going back to the time that I was very young. It was part of my 
you know, loving to be scared. And so I wanted to read about, you know, finger quotes, real life ghosts and, and the Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot and these things. And uh, as I grew older um, and began approaching these things from a skeptical perspective, my interest only deepened. Um, and so I'm involved with a number of, of groups and Facebook forums and whatnot um, on the topic of these sort of fringe belief systems. I knew I wanted to make a movie about something like that, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to tell. And I saw shortly after Roulette was released, and I was just trying to think about what I wanted to make next, uh, I saw a commercial or trailer for a found footage film that was due to be released. And immediately my wheels start turning as they typically do, both as a skeptic and also as a storyteller. And I began saying to myself, well, there was that window when the Blair Witch Project came out and everybody thought it was real for about five minutes. These found footage movies that are asking you to suspend disbelief and to uh, accept the premise that you are watching something that is real. If someone did find lost footage, um, what would be the journey uh, that it would take from being uncovered to ending up playing in a movie theater? Um, you know, who would find that footage? How did they find that footage? Once they found it, did they look at it right away? Did they give it to someone else? Did someone else find it? And, and upon viewing this, what would convince a person? What inherent clues or, or proofs within the context of the footage itself would convince a person that what they were looking at wasn't an unfinished horror movie or, or something that had been abandoned, uh, that it was real. And if they believed it, what then would they do to verify or authenticate it? They would clearly have to take this to the authorities next. Um, would this be something that uh, would be rejected outright by authorities? Would it be something that then would be uh, assimilated into a cold case file uh, as, as evidence of, of, you know, an unexplained death and the clues within that, you know, what, what sort of legal uh, loopholes would families sign off on releases to allow this stuff to be seen? And, you know, to me, that became a thousand times more interesting than um, the content that anyone could find on these tapes. And the idea that somebody would believe that they had it and it was genuine um, if they were trying to bring it forward, no one would believe it. No one would, no one would take it seriously. And so that, that was the story that I wanted to tell. Once that sort of clicked in my brain, um, I wrote the script in, I want to say, eight days. came out very quickly. Wow. Clearly, folks, he has definitely thought this bad boy through. It's Picture Lock. I'm Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of Butterfly Kisses, Eric Christopher Myers. Eric, unfortunately, we're going to have to bring this uh, part of the interview to a close. Uh, but, folks, if you are subscribed to the Picture Lock podcast, I want you to check out the Picture Lock Unlocked episode where Eric and I are going to go deeper into butterfly kisses. Now, in part, I would say that you probably want to go ahead and see the film first because we're going to get into spoiler territory and you're going to really appreciate the conversation that we're going to have. So, again, you know you guys can subscribe to Picture Lock and iTunes, tune in, all that good stuff. But, Eric, if you could, 
let people know how they can follow the film, social media, and uh, upcoming film festivals. Check it out, uh, Butterfly Kisses Movie on Facebook. Uh, you can look me up, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, meanwhile, the film is going to be playing this Friday, March 23rd, at the Annapolis Film Festival. Uh, it will be playing the next day, for those of you on the West Coast, March 24th, at the Unnamed Footage Festival in San Francisco. And then on April 27th, we are opening the Maryland International Film Festival. We're, we're going to be the first film that's played. That's a huge honor. I'm very excited. I, guys, I can't, I can't speak enough about this film. You definitely want to check it out if you live in those areas. Eric Christopher Myers, director of Butterfly Kisses, thanks for coming on Picture Lock. The pleasure is mine. Thank you, Kevin. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Nancy Bursky, John Dr. Teeth Tucker, and Eric Christopher Myers for coming on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear the unlocked, longer versions of my interviews with John and Eric. If you enjoyed the radio version, you'll love the in-depth convo. John and I talked in-depth on his music video work and how that translated to the film. Eric and I got into spoiler territory on his incredible horror film, so subscribe in iTunes, tune in, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a great review. And if you have one, tell Alexa, Alexa, play Picture Lock on TuneIn, and I'll come right up. You can find Picture Lock on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Pinterest, and Periscope. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at YouTube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe to it to get some incredible value and see interviews with filmmakers and the like. I really can't wait to start turning up the videos on YouTube. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Did this episode resonate with you? What's your favorite Picture Lock episode so far this year? Were you able to actually see Butterfly Kisses? Send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.